Please open up your Bibles to page one. You'll find Genesis chapter one. And so today we're resuming our sermon series through the book of Genesis. And we've been moving very slowly through the opening verses of the Bible, you know, with the, pre, the three previous sermons only covering the first five verses, which got us all the way through day one of creation. You may remember on day one, in Genesis 1, verses 3 to 5, we read, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. He separated the light from the darkness, called the light day, called the darkness night. There was evening and morning the first day. Now, today we're going to pick up the pace. And we're actually, believe it or not, we're going to briefly touch on all the other days of creation. Now, in a future sermon, we're going to take a longer look at, see, and you've got plenty of time. The Super Bowl's not for several hours, and so we can, we can make our way through this. Uh, but we'll, uh, we, we will get through it. And in a future sermon, we're going to take a longer look at day six and the creation of mankind. God made them male and female in his image. The creation mandate given by God to our first parents to multiply and be fruitful and have dominion over the earth. Also, we'll later look at, in more depth at um, the Sabbath in day seven, God ceasing from his work of creation. But today we're going to look at the overall picture of Genesis chapter one. So I want to remind you before we read it that Genesis one is a true historical account of that first week of creation. And so here now, God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word. I'll begin reading in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. The darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called seas and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind and on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give lights on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. 
And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. And it's given to us in love and for our good. Now, before we begin to work our way through Genesis chapter 1, I do want to remind us of some of the things that we discussed a couple of weeks ago about the days of creation. And I'm going to do this. I'm not going to re-preach the same sermon I preached a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to try to be brief. You can always go back and listen to the other sermon. But I know that some people weren't here, and I also know that I'm not always as effective as I would think that I am in communicating things. And so I want to try to get us all on the same page as we look at the days of creation in Genesis chapter 1. So the first thing to keep in mind, that many Christians feel like they have to choose between believing that the Bible is authoritative and infallible and inerrant or take science seriously. And they have to choose one or the other. Okay, but that is a false choice. There's not a conflict between an accurate and faithful reading and understanding of the Bible and an accurate and faithful understanding of science. That you really can have full confidence in the authority and the inerrancy and the infallibility of the Bible as God's Word, and you can have a fruitful life in the sciences. You really can make significant, meaningful contributions to all the various fields of science. You really, really can. But we need to remember the advice that the Protestant reformer John Calvin gave us, which was that the, the, the scriptures must be the, the spectacles or the lenses or the glasses by which we look 
in order to read and interpret and understand the natural world correctly, rightly, well, and that's including the sciences. So rather than adjusting our understanding of Scripture to try to match up with science, which is ever-changing, we should evaluate all of the various scientific theories in light of what we know to be true from the Scriptures. Second thing is that I know that as we approach Genesis 1, the days of creation, there are many different views about the the time period, the time that's covered in Genesis 1. And, and what does day mean? What does that Hebrew word yom, translated day, mean in Genesis 1? Does it really mean a 24-hour day? As I said a couple weeks ago, you know, it, my summary form of things, there's about four main views that people have. I'm going to be very, very brief in covering them. First, there is the gap theory. The, this theory proposes there was a gap or maybe multiple gaps throughout Genesis chapter 1. Uh, specifically, uh, it proposes a gap between the end of Genesis 1-1 and the beginning of Genesis 1-2, uh, a, a gap that the text does not say, does not allude to, doesn't anywhere allude to, but a gap that perhaps lasted millions and millions of years. And during that time, there was a primeval rebellion by Satan and his minions. And then the six, the six days of creation is a remaking of the earth after this rebellion. Now, I I don't embrace that theory, but that theory is there. There's also the framework hypothesis. The framework hypothesis views, um, it understands Genesis 1 to be a poem, to be an allegory, to be a metaphor, to be a literary, not literal, but literary presentation of creation, which makes Genesis 1 not being meant to be intended to be taken literally or chronologically, not a historical record. It's poetry, it's allegory, it's metaphor, it's meant to just teach us overarching things like God made everything. Day three, or the third view, would be the day-age view. It argues that the Hebrew word yom, which is translated day in Genesis 1, represents an age or a long period of time, or at least a longer period of time than our 24-hour days. Now, there are many Christians who hold this view and also believe the biblical account of creation in Genesis 1 is real history, not allegory, not poetry, not metaphor. And they believe that Genesis 1 is not in conflict with today's leading scientific theories if that Hebrew word yom, translated day, represents a very, very long period of time, possibly even millions of years, which would allow for the lengthy uh, development of the geological record. Now, there are examples in Scripture of Yom referring to longer periods of time than a single 24-hour day. But as I said two weeks ago, this is not my view of the meaning of the word day in Genesis 1. My view is the regular day view. The days of creation in Genesis 1 are six 24-hour days. And this view was held by virtually every Christian up until about 150 years ago. Now, I hold this view for several reasons. One, because the book of Genesis as a whole, and specifically Genesis 1, certainly included, is historical narrative. As we read it, I mean, I, we just read it together. It, 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 it's not a myth. It's not poetry. It's not allegory. It's not metaphor. It's, it's not even poetic narrative or semi-poetic or poetic prose or elevated prose or whatever kind of new phrase we come up with to describe it. It's, it's historical narrative. Right? The most common element of Hebrew poetry 
is parallelism, where two consecutive lines say the same thing but with different words in different ways. Like what you see at the beginning of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. That's parallelism. It's saying the same thing twice, just in slightly different ways. That's not what we have in Genesis 1. What we have is historical narrative. Theologian Gerhardus Voss says, if the creation history is an allegory, then the narrative concerning the fall and everything further that follows can also be allegory. Simply put, what he says is that there's a lot at stake if we, just, if we just decide somewhat arbitrarily that Genesis 1 is allegory, that's metaphor, that's a poem, it's not literal, it's not historical, then there's nothing that keeps us from saying that other things elsewhere in the Bible are allegory and metaphor and merely poetry and not to be taken literally. And we'll come back to this in a moment, but there are massive implications for what we believe about the gospel if the early chapters of Genesis are not giving us an accurate, faithful, historical record of what really happened. But additionally, the Hebrew grammar of Genesis 1 points to it being historical narrative. Okay, again, it's a bit technical here, but the, the grammar of Genesis 1 is called the, the vav consecutive plus an imperfect verb. Okay, I know that's like, all right, what does he just say? It's the common grammar of Old Testament historical narrative. The vav consecutive shows up in Genesis 1 all throughout often translated as the word and. And God said, and this happened, and it was good, and it was evening and morning. This happened, and this happened, and this happened, this happened. Like a story. And see, because that's what it is. It's a true story. That's a real problem for the framework hypothesis because Genesis 1 reads exactly like historical narrative because that's what it is. And then there's the numbering of the creation days, and then there's that, that refrain, evening and morning, that description which identifies these days as normal 24-hour days. You're, you're going to hear over and over, you already heard it this morning, you're going to hear it again as we make our way through it, evening and morning, second day, evening and morning, third, so forth. Uh, retired seminary professor Richard Belcher says, whenever the word day is used in Scripture with a number, an ordinal number, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth. It always refers to a regular day. Even many who are proponents of progressive creationism and even the day-age view recognize that the use of day with a number, which occurs over 200 times in the Bible, refers to a regular day. It also is also significant that whenever morning and evening are used together outside of Genesis 1, the reference is to a normal day. You see, Moses wrote Genesis 1 as true and accurate history. And every other author in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, anytime they reference Genesis 1 or allude back to it, they always treat it as a true historical account. They always do. You see it in Exodus, Isaiah, Jonah. You see it in, with, from Jesus in the Gospels, the book of Hebrews, the book of Revelation. I'll give you one example. If you look at the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, we look at the Fourth Commandment dealing with the Sabbath. We read, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. 
On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. Verse 11, for in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. That here we see that we're to understand Genesis 1 as a normal week. Seven 24-hour days. So, I know that there are different views uh, about Genesis 1 and the length of these days, even among Christians who are, who are eager to be faithful and uh, to believe the Bible is the infallible, inerrant, true Word of God. So what commitments do we have to agree to as we study the early chapters of Genesis? First, we really must commit to making every effort we can to read the Bible faithfully, to read the Bible well. We also must not seek to mold our interpretation of the Bible to fit every you know, new and changing scientific theory and idea. These theories, they keep changing. These ideas keep changing. We also must affirm the supernatural creation of the cosmos that God said. He created ex nihilo by the word of his power. We must affirm that. We must affirm the, the supernatural creation of Adam and Eve as the first humans. There were no people before them. There were no almost people before them. There were no humanoids before them. Adam and Eve, the first people. We also must affirm that Adam and Eve really did fall in sin in the garden. And the result of that fall, as a result of that fall, death came. And Adam's sin has been imputed to us. You see, all of this matters. See, the, the first Adam's failure in the garden, the, the, the historicity of that, the truth about that matters because what the Bible goes on to say is it presents the good news of the gospel to us in that where the first Adam failed, the second Adam, Christ, succeeded. The first Adam really did fail. He really did fall. And that sin really was imputed to us. And it matters because the second Adam really did succeed. And he lived a, a righteous, perfect life. And he really did die on the cross. And he really did rise from the grave. Whenever you trust in him, you really are forgiven. And you really are counted as righteous. I mean, listen to what we read in Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, talking about Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned, all sinned in Adam. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians 2.1 that we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. That's how we enter this world, dead in our trespasses and sins. That we need to be raised to newness of life in Christ. Romans 5 verse 15 goes on to say, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, talking about Adam's, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. As I said earlier, if creation history is an allegory, then the narrative concerning the fall and everything that follows can also be allegory. So it matters that we understand this, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and 3, well and faithfully and rightly. Okay. With the rest of our time today, we're going to briefly touch on each day in the week of creation. I'm going to end with offering a few applications for our lives, okay? Two weeks ago, we covered day one. 
We're going to look at it very, very briefly because it's helpful. Day one, look at verse three. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that light was good. God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. The darkness he called night. There was evening. There was morning. The first day. We're looking at this again because every day that follows kind of has the same pattern in it. They all have this basically the same pattern. There's an announcement. God said. That's repeated 10 times throughout Genesis 1. It's very clear that pretty much the only subject in Genesis 1 is God. God is doing all the creating. Everything, all creation comes by the voice of God, by the word of his power. There's an announcement, God said. Then there's a command, let there be. Then there is the fulfillment of that command, it was so. And then there is God's approval. God saw that it was good. Then there's often a a subsequent word of naming or explanation. And then finally we have evening and morning, and the day is numbered. So we're going to see that over and over and over again. Okay, so look at day two, verses six to eight. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And if God made the expanse, and God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. Okay, so God separates waters from waters with an expanse. An expanse, or uh, the footnote in your ESV Bible also says canopy. And the result is that there are waters below or under the expanse, and there are waters above the expanse. Now, you could imagine the meaning of this expanse has been debated over the years. And many faithful Christians disagree on exactly what is meant by the expanse. Okay, some people take it to refer to a canopy, a firmament, or some type of dome that covered the earth and separated waters from below, waters from above. There's also the view that this expanse is simply the sky. Pastor Kent Hughes says, It was the visible expanse of sky with the waters of the sea below and clouds holding water above. It is the blue we see. God called it sky, which is the alternate translation of the word heaven in verse 8. You can see that if you're using the ESV translation. You'll see footnote 3. It takes you to the bottom of the page, and you'll see that heaven could be sky. Now, if you look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 20, it does seem to point in that direction to me. Genesis 1:20 said, And God said that the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. I think about, okay, where do the birds fly? Birds fly in the sky, across the expanse of the heavens. For the waters below, the oceans, what exactly is the expanse in the sky? Is it some kind of a canopy? Is it some kind of a dome? Or is it just the sky and the waters above or in the clouds? Debated. I mean, Houstonians certainly know that, that, that oceans of water can certainly fall from the sky, right? If you were living here a few years ago, we, found, we sat oceans and oceans. They just kept falling from the sky. But now, if you remember what the original creation was like in Genesis 1-2, do you remember that from a couple of weeks ago? In Genesis 1-2, we're told, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. But notice, see, by the end of the second day, we see that God has brought light 
into the darkness, and God has brought order and form to that which was without form. All that happens by the end of the second day. As one commentator put it, the earth, warmed by light, was now robed in blue and dappled with clouds floating over a sparkling sea. We see there was evening and there was morning the second day. Now look at day three. And as we look at day three, remember, each day of creation follows a very similar pattern, right? God speaks, and God said, let there be, and then it happens, it was so, then there's approval given, and it was good. Well, that pattern happens twice in day three. So first we read in verses 9 and 10, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. So the water had been everywhere, but on day three, it's all gathered together and dry land appears. As we read in Psalm 104, verses 8 and 9, the mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that God appointed for them, and that God set a boundary that they, the waters, may not pass, so that they might not again cover the earth. And seminary professor John Courage says, the fundamental construction of the cosmos, sky, earth, and sea, it's now established here in day three. In other words, the physical structure is finished, and it awaits God's act of filling with things to dwell in it. And so we see here in the middle of day three that, that now form and order has been given to the earth, and God begins to focus on filling the void. So we're still in day three, and then we read verse 11 to 13. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. See, up until this point, all of creation had been you know, ex nihilo, God creating out of nothing. But here we see that God gives the earth the ability, the, the power to, to grow and to produce and, and reproduce vegetation and plants and, and fruit trees. But this ability to reproduce comes from God. Comes from God. Do you see that? And there was evening and there was morning, the third day. And then day four, God continues his work of filling the cosmos that he's created. And on day four, he fills the sky with the sun, moon, and stars. Okay, so look, look at verse 14 and following. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth, and it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Okay, so all throughout history, and certainly in the ancient world, and most certainly in Moses' day, that people would often worship the, the sun and the moon as if they were gods themselves. But we see here that the sun and the moon, they're not gods to be worshipped. They're gifts from the one true God. And like all of creation, they're gifts from our one true God, and they serve as signs, 
as signs or markers to help us order our lives, our days and our seasons and our years. Now, if you're paying attention and you're thinking about the days, you may be thinking, okay, Richard, all right, if Genesis is a true historical chronological account of creation, how could there be light on day one and how could there be plants on day three if the sun was not made until day four? I'm glad you asked. Now, there are different ways that Christians will attempt to faithfully answer this apparent dilemma. Here's my short answer. I honestly, I don't see a dilemma. God is supernaturally creating the cosmos. He is supernaturally creating everything throughout this entire week of creation. Therefore, friends, I have no problem trusting that God could supernaturally provide his own light before he made the sun. In fact, it's not only here in Genesis 1 that we see light existing apart from the sun. That's also how the Bible ends in the new heavens and the new earth. We see in Revelation 21, verse 23, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Then a few verses later we read, And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, before we move on from day four, I do want to say something about verse 16. Verse 16, I don't know if you caught it or not, it's one of the greatest understatements of all time. Okay, Genesis 1, verse 16. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night. Oh yeah, and the stars. You know, oh, and, you know, and God, God made the stars too. Okay, I mean, I mean think about that. I, I mean, there's, there's lots of humor in the Bible if you read it slowly enough and well enough to see it, but... I mean, do you know how many stars that NASA estimates are in the universe? Okay, it's a lot. They estimate that the universe could contain up to one septillion stars, right? A million is followed by six zeros, a billion by nine zeros, a septillion is followed by 24 zeros. That's a lot. Our Milky Way galaxy estimated to contain more than one billion stars. So, dear Christian, I mean, stop and reflect on how great and how glorious your God is. That he spoke everything into existence. The cosmos. That he creates the sun, he creates the moon, and kind of ho-hum, he just makes billions and billions of stars. Just like that. By the word of his power. That's the God. That's the God who knew your name before the foundation of the earth. That is the God who loves you. That is the God who sent his son to live and die and rise from the grave for you. That's the God you pray to. That's the God who has spoken to you in his word. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Day five, look at verses 20 to 23. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. 
and there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And so God fills the seas with swarms of sea creatures, from the greatest of the sea creatures to the tiniest of the fish. And then God fills the sky with all kinds of birds, and God gives them the power to reproduce and to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the waters, to fill the earth, to fill the skies. The old Bible commentator Matthew Henry says, The power of God's providence preserves all things. As at first his creating power produced them, fruitfulness is the effect of God's blessing and must be ascribed to it. The multiplying of the fish and fowl from year to year is still the fruit of his blessing. Well, let us give to God the glory for the continuance of these creatures to this day. And so think about that. Think about God creating all these sea creatures to fill the waters. The great sea creatures, as the text says. You know, the, the, largest, you know, the largest creature in the seas is the blue whale. Um, you know, a few years ago, I had the opportunity to go preach at a church in Alaska. I was able to take my family with me. And one of the highlights was that I actually saw a blue whale just barely kind of come out of the water. And, you know, it took about a minute for it to kind of come up and go down. I have the recording of it. My kids care nothing about it. But it's really cool to me. I'm happy to show it to you. It's pretty awesome. These are incredible creatures, enormous creatures, right, up to 100 feet long. They can weigh up to 200 tons. How about this? A blue whale's tongue can weigh as much as an elephant. I mean, think about that, okay. Its heart can weigh as much as an automobile. It's incredible. God makes incredible creatures like that. But then God also makes, and okay, think about birds. I know nothing about birds. I've never taken a video of a bird, okay? I, I have a whale, okay, but not the birds. But, but I did Google search, tell me some fun things about birds. So here's a few things. A hummingbird's heart beats from 225 times per minute when it's at rest and more than 1,200 times per minute when it's flying. Okay, and the tiniest bird is a hummingbird. It's a bee hummingbird, and it measures only two and a quarter inches long. It weighs a little more than one and a half grams. One of its eggs weighs about half of a paperclip. And God made that. God sustains it. The peregrine falcon has been recorded diving at speeds up to 240 miles per hour. Incredible. There's, there's a bird, a seabird, a small seabird called the Arctic tern. Arctic tern weighs four ounces. And do you know that it migrates 44,000 miles every year? It travels around the world every single year from Greenland and the Arctic Circle, zigzagging its way to Antarctica and then back. And the thing weighs four ounces. And it can do this. And God made all of this. Right? Let us give glory to get God the glory for making and preserving these creatures to this very day. See, there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And then day six, after the seas and the sky are filled with the creatures, God turns to the dry land on day six. And so we see in verse 24 and 25, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. 
Then God goes on to give three more divine creation speeches in day six. One is going to be about mankind, and the other two speeches are made to mankind, which is unique to mankind, different from all the other creatures that were created in that week of creation. As I said, next Sunday we're going to come back to day six, but let's look at a few high points today. Look at verses 26 and 27. And God said, let us make man in our image. And notice, everything, all the other creatures are made according to their kinds. But this is different. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So mankind, male and female, created in the image of our triune God. Let us make man in our image. Again, we're going to come back to this next Sunday. But notice that, 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 that mankind is a creature unlike all the other creatures that we read about in Genesis 1. As one commentator put it, Whereas the other creatures are created according to their kinds, humanity is made in the image of God. Being made in God's image establishes humanity's role on earth. See, men and women are created, are designed with special dignity that's unique to mankind and not shared with any of the other creatures. And we see this in what God says to Adam and Eve. Look at verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The theologians refer to this as the creation mandate, which God gave to mankind the, the role of serving as his royal vice regent, his royal overseer of the earth, all for God's glory. And we'll, again, we'll look at this more next week, but look at what else God says to Adam and Eve, beginning in verse 29. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Not only good, but it's very good. And God provides abundant food for Adam and Eve and for all of the other creatures that he's made. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Then we have day seven. And so just as we're going, to re, we're going to revisit day six in the future, we're going to revisit day seven in the weeks to come too. But for today, I want you to notice how Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 2-1 serve bookends as bookends for this week of creation. Right, don't let the chapter break from chapter 1 to chapter 2 fool you. Okay? It continues on to Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. So look at that. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 2.1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. Bookends. This creation week. And so there's a sense in which we're, we're not wrong to say that that, 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 that making mankind in God's image is the climax of creation, we're not really wrong, but we are wrong if we exclude day seven. And God resting. God resting from his work of creation. 
See, look, look what, what, what God does when his work of creation is finished. Look at verses 1 to 3 in Genesis 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done. He rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. You see, God rests, but he doesn't rest because he's exhausted. Okay, I mean, later today, and not very, not very long from now, I'm going to rest, all right, because I'm tired. But, but God did not rest because he was tired, because he was worn out from the work week. God rests in the sense that God ceases his work of creation. And then on the seventh day, he steps back to enjoy his handiwork, to look at what he's, all that he's done. And it was good. It was very good. Okay, now I've got a confession to make, and some of you will think less of me after this, but it's true. I, I'm not a builder, okay? I am, I am not handy with, with my hands. I, I, can't, I can barely follow instructions to put things together, okay? Everybody knows it. Alicia knows it. The kids know it. Some of you know it because I get you to come help me do stuff because I can't do it. I'm not very good at it. Now, there is one piece of furniture in Elizabeth's room that my son and I did, we put together, you know what, and it's awesome. If you come over, I'll show it to you. You know, it's really, really, it's really, really impressive. We put together following instructions and a video, and it's very clear that we, we nailed it. We, we, it's perfect. What we see in day seven is God stepping back because he, he nailed it. That his work of creation is done. And he said, it's all very good. And so he ceases from this work of creation. But praise God that he keeps working in his work of providence. His work of providence whereby he upholds and directs and governs all creatures and actions and things from the greatest even to the least. And praise God that continues this day. But what we see in Genesis 2 is that God's work of creation ceased. And it was all good. It was all very good. Okay, so what do we take away from Genesis chapter 1? Three things. Here's the first. Don't miss, don't miss the greatness of God and his glory in Genesis 1. We've been looking at it over and over again, and I've tried to remind you of this, I think every single sermon that we've been in Genesis 1, but don't miss this. Don't miss the greatness of God's glory. We're meant to see that, to not overlook it, to not just read past it. And I love this quote from Pastor Kevin DeYoung. He says, Genesis 1 is a rejection of atheism because there is a God. It's a rejection of polytheism because there's only one God. It's a rejection of pantheism because the creation is not God. It's a rejection of humanism because man is not God. It's a rejection of macroevolution because the world and its creatures come into being by intelligent design. Genesis 1 rejects materialism that is, that the physical world, what we can see, is all that is really there. Genesis 1, on the other hand, rejects dualism. The dualism that says spiritual stuff is good and physical stuff is bad, or intrinsically dirty and evil. God creates ex nihilo, out of nothing. In the beginning, there was God, and he has no competitor. He has no rival. He is the lawgiver. The world reflects the creator as he subdues the chaos and brings about an ordered world, we see here the greatness of God. And so don't miss that. 
The second thing, we also see the marvelous generosity and abundant goodness of God in Genesis 1. See, God is infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his goodness. And his creation is good. And it is a good gift from our good and generous, loving God. And it really, really is. And so it's good and it's right. It's appropriate. It's healthy for us to enjoy and delight in God's creation in all the proper ways. It's good. It's wonderful. You should enjoy, delight in the mountains and the forest, in the lakes, in the rivers, and the streams, and the ocean, and the beach, and in your backyard, and wherever it is your favorite place to be. And, and enjoy it with your favorite people, with your family and friends, and eat your favorite food, and to listen to your favorite music, and watch your favorite movies, and read your favorite book. You're all in the proper proportions, and in the right ways, and at the right times. But you need to remember that over and over and over and over again, we're told in Genesis chapter 1 that all that God made is good, and it's good, and it's good, and it's good, and it's good, and it was very good. So friends, don't miss, along with the greatness and the glory of God, don't miss that all that you love in this world is meant to be a reminder of God's marvelous and glorious generosity and abundant goodness towards you. Thirdly, last thing, don't miss that there is a God-given structure, order, purpose, and meaning to all creation, and that includes you and your life. Commentator Daniel Atkinson says, Genesis 1 reminds us that the rest of God's creation, and we human beings also, are there for Him. There is a community of creation, and each part is brought to its potential and fulfillment only in correspondence with other parts, as each stays in line with God's creative purposes for it. Remember, in the very beginning, earth, the earth was without form and void. But then in the span of the week of creation, God gives the world form and fullness and purpose. And life only works whenever we know and we pursue our God-given purpose. And so do, do you know your purpose? Do you know why you're, why you're here? Why you're here on this planet? Now, if you came in through the main entrance this morning, we give you a hint every Sunday. It's right there etched into the, the brick. It's the first answer in the, in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The first question asks, what is the chief end of man? What's man's purpose? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Okay, well, how do we know how to do that? Well, the second question, what rule has God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? The answer, the word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. You see, friends, whenever we don't know or we forget or we ignore our God-given purpose, and we ignore and we forget and we turn a blind eye and turn our backs on God's revealed word in his, the scriptures, then we're going to rebel against him. And the Bible calls this sin. And sin never makes things better. Sin never, ever takes us where we want to go. And sin is always far more costly than we ever expected to have to pay. You see, sin always brings ruin. Sin only brings forth death. And we're going to soon get to Adam's sin in the garden. And we're going to see the ruin and the decay and the death that's brought forth into the world, into all humanity, through Adam. 
However, and praise God this is true, in that same passage, we're going to read about the promise of a Savior to come. And the rest of the Bible tells us that his name is Jesus Christ, and that he is the eternal, the divine Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, and he took on flesh, and he lived, and he died, and he rose from the grave to save us, and to sanctify us, and to bring all of God's people all of the way home to be with our triune God in heaven for all eternity. And so I have to ask, do you know this Christ? Do you know him? Do you know this this saving love? Or better yet, do you want to know him? Because you can. The invitation is there. Come to him in faith. Receive and rest by faith in his finished work of salvation on your behalf. You see, just as God brought order to the chaos of creation... And just as God brought form to the formlessness, just as he brought fullness to the void, just as he brought light to the darkness, receive and rest in Christ's finished work on your behalf. And friend, he will do the same for you and in you. That he really will forgive you. That he really will graciously bring fullness into the emptiness of your life. That he really will bring order and purpose into the meaninglessness of your life. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he, that's God the Father, made him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. That God brings, in Christ, he brings righteousness to the unrighteous. See, it's not, not that you become a Christian by somehow working hard and mustering up your own self-righteousness. We don't have that, and we can't do that. So we must come to Christ. We need His righteousness imputed to us, credited to us. And if you come to Him, friends, He will not turn you away. That Jesus really is the one and only Redeemer, and He really does redeem. He really does buy back. He really does restore. He really does make new. That you are not a lost cause. You are not too far gone. So come to Christ. Receive and rest in him and his finished work of his life, death, and resurrection on your behalf. He will not, he cannot turn you away if you will come. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for the greatness of your glory that we see in creation. Lord, we know it is, it is, so, it is so very true. Father, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims your handiwork. Lord, help us to not miss, not take for granted your marvelous generosity and your abundant goodness to us. Lord, my prayer is that not one of us would leave here in this room believing the lie that we are simply too bad, too sinful, too much of a lost cause to come to Christ, to be forgiven, to be made new, to be transformed from the inside out. And so, Father, please, help us to believe these things. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.